All right, well, this morning we are going to finish the study that we began two weeks ago in the salutation of Paul's letter to Titus. So you can turn there to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 and the salutation is the first four verses of chapter 1, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But our sermon is going to continue to be titled, A Letter from a God Who Does Not Lie. This is part two of A Letter from a God Who Does Not Lie. And when you talk about literary structure and, and those kinds of things, there's, there's obviously some, uh, uh, some interesting uh, details, at least to some of us. For others, the details of literary structure aren't that, uh, aren't that uh, interesting. But I thought uh, I would share with you an outline of a typical Pauline letter. Someone actually sent this to me this past week, and I thought, you know what, this, is, this captures it so well. So here it is. If you want to outline one of Paul's letters, it typically follows this structure. Very simply, boil down to the very basics. Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. And Timothy says hi. Uh, So someone sent that to me and I thought, you know what, that actually captures... A typical Pauline letter with amazing, uh, amazing comprehension right there. Um, and we're going to be going through that in the letter uh, to Titus. Follows much of that uh, same uh, approach. But we're in this, this salutation, so let's begin here in Titus chapter 1, and we'll review, reread the first four verses here. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even His Word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And this morning we're going to really look at the second half of that salutation where Paul launches into a digression from this idea of the hope of eternal life, which is essentially the gospel message and the assurance that comes as offered through that wonderful promise of eternal life. Paul launches into this digression and then also includes in, uh, at the end of that salutation the typical elements of a, uh, of a salutation in, in identifying the, the addressee as well as identifying the wish or prayer for that recipient. Now, as I said last week, Paul's letters always follow a typical typical Greco-Roman letter, but what Paul does in all of his beginnings is that he he loads up these beginnings, these salutations, these introductions with a lot of extra theology. So he doesn't just follow the customary pleasantries. He, He highlights key doctrines, and in particular, he uses salutations from time to time really as keys to introduce and to focus the reader on the themes that Paul 
will be dealing with later on in the letter, and he certainly does that here. We find him emphasizing such things as the goals of his apostleship to uh, be used as an instrument for the faith and knowledge and godliness of those to whom he ministers. We also see in this the nature of divine revelation, and we also will note in this salutation some very, very profound uh, truths about the character of God. And as I said last time, for preaching through a salutation, we're really going to organize our thoughts around its literary structure. And in that literary structure, here in Titus, we see this, the messenger's identity in the first three verses, the messenger's audience in the first half of verse 4, and then the messenger's wish in the second half of verse 4. Again, by way of review, we already looked at the first part of verses 1 through 3. We looked at how Paul identifies himself. And he begins with a personal identification in the first half of verse 1. Paul, he defines himself as a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. But after mentioning his apostleship, he immediately transitions to talk about his his goals of apostleship, what his ministry purposes were. And, And he saw himself as existing for these two purposes. Number one, we saw this last time, He existed for the sake of the faith and understanding of God's elect. We saw that in the second half of verse 1. And then we also noted that he exists for the sake of the assurance of God's elect, the assurance of their faith. We saw that in that verse, uh, the beginning of verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, or what we could translate as for the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. And we left off last time in our study with that that very important phrase, that this hope of eternal life, which we can see as synonymous with the gospel, this hope of eternal life is promised by a God who does not lie. Paul uses very unusual language to press a point And that point is the utter inability of God to speak, to promise, to declare, to decree anything that is in any way errant or deceitful. He is a God who cannot lie. And again, going back to one of the statements that we read last time when we were studying this together, Thomas Watson encapsulated this well when he said this, the truthfulness of God is a great pillar for our faith, for our hope in eternal life, you could say. Were not He a God of truth, how could we believe in Him? Our faith would be fancy. But He is truth Himself, or truth itself. And not a word which He has spoken shall fall to the ground. And so, as we concluded our, uh, our study last time, we concluded this, the contents of this letter, therefore, are to be received as from God Himself. Paul will even emphasize that in the next verses. And it is to be received by a God as from a God who does not lie. So everything in the contents of this letter as having originated in God Himself has to be taken as 100% truth. And as we get into this letter, there are going to be some difficult portions. There are going to be some things where Paul deals directly with attitudes and behaviors and actions that are going to be convicting 
And there is in the world today, and there is even in our own flesh, a tendency to disbelieve these things. To think that perhaps some way God didn't get it right, or that what He spoke was somehow not considerate of our times. And we're going to have to come back to this and realize that this letter, as all of God's Word is, comes from a God who never lies. And we want to continue now and pick up where we left off. Let's go back to verse 2 and look at this phrase again. Because now after Paul makes this reference to the character of God, he now explains how this hope in eternal life has come into existence. Where did this hope come from? The very idea that Paul said, I I, I exist so that God's elect would have assurance would have certainty in this faith certainty in this promise of eternal life and Paul says well how did that certainty come into being we know it originates from a God who does not lie but Paul now he now extrapolates on that and gives us insight into how this hope of eternal life has actually come to our awareness And notice how he describes it. He says this hope, this promise that God has made, this declaration that God has bound Himself to, originated or was promised what he says says as long ages ago, or what we can translate as before times eternal. Before times eternal. Now what does that mean? It really means before time began. You know, it's really a statement that emphasizes this came before even you could start counting the days. It came from eternity past. God made this declaration, this promise of eternal life, He made it before the start of time. So if you look at it this way, looking at time as linear, it had a beginning when God first created. And He created that first day. Time began. Genesis chapter 1. But what Paul is saying here is that this promise was made before time started. It was made in eternity past. And we can't comprehend this. God stands outside of time. He is not dependent on time. He exists eternally. And sometime in in the eternal existence of God, before time itself began, Paul said, this promise of eternal life was decided It was decided. It was determined. It was decreed. It was settled. God, in His mind, determined this plan of redemption and that He would hold out this promise of eternal life to sinners. But notice Paul says, it did not remain shrouded in eternal secrecy. You know, we can look at that diagram and we can see, okay, we see time and we know where we fall in that. We fall in the linear progression of time. But how in the world are we to know of a promise that God has made that He has made completely outside of time? And without any respect to time, Paul says it did not remain shrouded in the eternal mystery of God. He said it was made manifest. It was made manifest, Paul says, at the proper time, within time. God revealed this promise. It's like what we read in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, that when the fullness of time came, when the fullness of time came, when 
the proper time came. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This promise, Paul says, was made manifest. It was revealed. And as we look at that, we see there's more to it. Paul says not only was this promise made in the past, before the, time, before the, the, the beginning of time, it was manifested in time, and then we might ask the question, well, how was that manifested? How did that promise of eternal life actually come to our awareness, to our, to our knowledge, that we could, we could understand it or, or access it? And Paul describes that as well. He, he says this, it was manifested not in some experience, the promise of eternal life, the gospel does not come to us through some kind of feeling It does not come to us through intuition, through some kind of divine spark that God has placed within us. That's common when you talk to other religions. They'll talk about salvation. They'll use the same terminology, but they'll base it on some kind of experience they've had, some kind of feeling that they've felt at some moment in their lives, and that for them was salvation. Or they'll talk about the divine spark that God has placed within us that is the source of salvation. But Paul says the manifestation of eternal life, the hope of eternal life, the manifestation of it has come through a word. It's come through a message. It's come through verbal revelation. It's come through words. It's come through propositions, historical descriptions. It's come through a word. Moreover, it was manifested through the instrumentality of Paul's proclamation. He says this, that it was manifest at the proper time. That is His Word. And now Paul describes it even further in saying that this Word is synonymous with the proclamation which he made. The proclamation which was entrusted to Paul. This term proclamation is a strong term emphasizing the the, the idea of of a a public formal declaration made by one who is not himself the origination of the message, but he has been delegated, he has been entrusted with the message to pass it on to others. And Paul says that delegation was made by none other than God and His commandment. Commandment. You see here all the authority that Paul is referring to and the emphasis on this. Again, not only does the gospel message come from a God who does not lie, but it has been delivered through instrumentality that has been commanded by God, overseen by God. It is delivered through an instrumentality which is so clearly absent of any kind of human uh, infection or syncretism. This has come faithfully through God's chosen instruments so that when we hear the apostolic proclamation, we can be guaranteed that on the one hand, yes, it is the proclamation of the Apostle Paul as we read it and as Titus would have read it, but at the same time, it is the Word of God. Speaking of that idea of proclamation and how Paul understood it to be, the uh, early church father, John Chrysostom, 
also called golden tongue, he described this kind of proclamation. He, he comments on that word proclamation, kerugma is the term, and, and he helps us understand here what was involved in Paul's proclamation of this message from a God who does not lie. The word proclaimer is the word herald, and so he says this, quote, For as a herald proclaims in the theater, in the presence of all, so also we preach, adding nothing, but declaring the things which we have heard. For the excellence of a herald consists in proclaiming to all what has really happened, not in adding or taking anything away. If therefore it is necessary to preach, and certainly Paul felt the necessity, it was necessary to do it with boldness of speech, otherwise it is not preaching. And that was the message that Paul was sending to Timothy, even in his own words. This comes with all the authority of God through the instrument of one who has been commissioned to pass on that word faithfully without corrupting it in any way. Now when we look back at the text, specifically at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3, we, we see this, that it was entrusted by commandment. Paul received this commissioning and this message according to a commandment. And, and notice this, this, this phrase that Paul uses here. It is so very important and it's really a very fundamental theological uh, key to the rest of the letters we're going to see. This commandment came from God our Savior. It came from God our Savior, or literally the, the language would be from our Savior, God. Now when Paul uses the title God, he is referring to God the Father when it's found in contexts like this. And when we look at it closely, we see that this what might, we might expect as just a, a normal designation, we see that this title introduces what will be a key emphasis in the rest of the letter. And this is fascinating to see this. And I want you to pay careful attention to this. Paul uses the title Savior frequently in this letter. In fact, Paul uses the title Savior in all of his letters he uses it 12 times in his 13 letters. Most of them are, in the, are actually in the pastoral epistles. But think of all of Paul's letters, a lot of different letters. He uses it a total of 12 times. Six of those times are in the letter to Titus. And that is no coincidence. Obviously, there is a doctrine here that was essential not just for Titus, but for the inhabitants of the island of Crete. Secondly, what we'll note here with Paul's ascription of the title Savior to God the Father is that we find in this letter, unlike the other letters of Paul, we find a remarkable liberty in ascribing that title to both God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. It is, it is unmistakable here how freely... Paul moves between calling the Father the Savior and the Son the Savior. It's remarkable. And he even does this in very close proximity. You know, it'd be one thing if he would state that God is the Savior and then 
maybe a chapter later, many paragraphs and ideas later, he refers to Jesus Christ as the Savior. And then maybe after another whole section in his letter, he goes back and he refers to God the Father as Savior. That would be one thing. But what is remarkable here, and we cannot miss it, is that Paul does this, this interchange, always within close context. Let me show it to you here on the screen when we look at the references in Titus. In Titus 1 verse 3, in this salutation, he refers to God the Father as our Savior. In the very next verse, we're going to see that it is Christ Jesus, our Savior. In the same breath, in the same paragraph, in the same salutation, which is so very unique as a literary piece, Paul freely moves between calling the Father and the Son the Savior. Then in chapter 2, Paul is going to again call God the Savior. And just a few words later, in verse 13, he is going to refer to our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And then we're going to see it in chapter 3. 3 verse 4, he will again refer to God our Savior And then just a few verses later, in verse 6 of chapter 3, he will say, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we see in Paul that there is no inhibition on his part, no concern on his part, on ascribing the same essence to one and the other. He is Savior. Who is Savior? The Father. Who is Savior? Jesus is Savior. You have to understand that for a typical Jewish writer to use the same title that you would use to address Yahweh, God, as Jesus Christ would not be done if you didn't believe in the equality of those persons. You see here in Paul a great Christology. You see here what it contributes to our overall understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, particularly testified to through their work in redemption. God our Savior and Christ our Savior. Now when we focus on that, I want to step back for just a moment and again draw your attention to some of the the great theology in this text. Not only about God and Christ as Savior, but about other qualities or attributes that are described of God in general here in this salutation. Look at what we've noticed so far as we reflect on the character of God that is, that is put on display here in this salutation. Number one, God is a promising God. We've seen that already. He makes pledges and He stakes His own character on their fulfillment. We saw that when we looked at verse 2, which said that God is a God who promised. And that idea of promise is to make a pledge and then commit yourself to its fulfillment and to stake your own character on that achievement. God is a promising God. We also see that God is a truthful God. Whatever He decrees, declares, or promises will never contain even the slightest hint of error or deceit. He is a God who is always truthful and only truthful. That is our God. We also see that He is an eternal God. He made His promises outside of time itself. He made His promises totally independent of creation, of time. He is an eternal God. We see that on display in these verses. 
We also see on display that God is a sovereign God. He is a sovereign God even in this work of redemption because He is the one who determined out of the category of sinners the beneficiaries of this promise of the hope of eternal life. We saw that in reference to the word the elect back in verse 1. He determined these beneficiaries even before they existed and even before their need arose. Number five, He is a revealing God. He is a revealing God. He does not remain in the shadows. He does not keep Himself hidden. He does not play some kind of cosmic hide-and-go-seek game with His creation. He manifests Himself. He makes Himself known ultimately in Jesus Christ But He makes Himself known also through His verbal revelation. He makes His promises known in clear verbal form. Number six, He is also a saving God. He is a saving God. He is God the Savior. He delights. This means He delights to share His eternal life with the unworthy and with the hopeless. This is what it means when we confess God as Savior. Because He delights in this. To rescue those who merit no rescue. To redeem those who merit no redemption. He is also, as we are going to see, an impartial God. When we talk about the elect, when we talk about His application of the promises and His sovereignty, when we talk about His saving work, we also say He's an impartial God. And how are we going to see this? We're going to see this in the next verses. He saves both Jew and Greek. He saves both Paul and Titus. And He even saves the Cretans. Let's look at that. And we see this in the second part of this literary structure. And we'll only spend a few minutes here because it is very straightforward. Only a few words here. Verse 4, the first half, Paul transitions from that lengthy discussion of the identity of the messenger to this identity or the the, uh, identification of the audience, the recipient. And Paul writes this to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. First of all, the name Titus was a common Greek name. And it indicated that Titus most likely was uh, a Greek by ethnicity, and that's certainly confirmed in Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. You can write that down, as I've mentioned already in our survey of Titus's life. Titus was brought by, by uh, Paul and Barnabas to the Jerusalem council as the only true, pure Gentile who had never converted to Judaism. He had just embraced Jesus as the Messiah, and, and he is taken, Titus is, as a Gentile uh, exhibit and put on display. And Paul presses the matter, and he says to the Jerusalem council, the elders and the apostles there, what about this guy who has believed in Jesus for his salvation, who's confessed him as Lord? Can we share communion with him? Can we gather around the Lord's Supper with him at our side? And as we know, the answer to that was yes. He was a Greek. Paul calls him my true child. It's a likely reference to the fact that Titus was converted under Paul's ministry. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that it's very possible that Titus was even there in Antioch, in the church in Antioch, in those early days of the first Gentile church. He was there in Antioch, 
And it could have been a relative of Luke because in the book of Acts, Luke doesn't mention Titus at all, and that goes in keeping with Luke's discretion. He wants to be behind the scenes, and so he won't even mention his family members. Some, some people would say, well, Luke, you know, why is that? You know, if you give them at least a, a place on the page. But uh, Luke doesn't reference Titus at all, and it's possible then that Titus was a man from Antioch as well, converted under Paul. We don't know that, but what we can tell from this this statement, my true child, is that Titus certainly was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. Paul invested in his life. Titus was one who had, who had learned from Paul, who had observed Paul in ministry and see Paul's conduct, and he would hear Paul's teaching, and he would imitate that in his own life in a true picture of Christian discipleship. And finally, we see that this relationship exists in a common faith, and that's a precious term. Don't miss it. In a common faith. It is a faith that brings together Jew and Gentile into one fellowship, into one unity, into one harmony. Jew and Gentile, and, and, and Paul is, is emphasizing this to Titus as he writes that, look, we don't have two different religions. This is not two different sects. This is one faith, one faith with Christ as the head. But it even expresses perhaps something more than this. After all, the Apostle Paul has highlighted his authority in the first three verses, and he highlights Timothy's role as a disciple. But before you make too much of that, Paul Paul brings it all the way down to the most basic level and says, though I'm an apostle and you are a disciple, this is a common faith. We are one. We are equal. We have equality in Jesus Christ. Again, going back to Chrysostom on this, he says this, it is as if Paul states the following, with respect to the faith, I have no advantage over thee. For it is common, and both thou and I were born by it. By mentioning the common faith, therefore, Paul intimates their brotherhood. Such a wonderful, wonderful expression, our common faith. And let me exhort you to remember that, even as Paul emphasizes it here, that as you address one another, as you consider one another and minister to one another, whether you're in a position of authority or in a position of of being a disciple or a discipler, that you always remember this common faith. We are one. We are members of the same body, all equal under Christ, born of the same gospel message with Christ as our common head. But this letter was written with more than just Titus in mind, which which takes this idea of a common faith beyond just Titus. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but very quickly, we must understand that Paul wrote this letter to Titus not wanting Titus just to keep it under a bowl or just to keep it in his private study. Paul wrote this letter to Titus for him to take the very contents of everything that he writes, including this salutation, and pass it on to the churches in Crete. He says, for example, in chapter 2, verse 15, these things, Titus, What are these things? Everything in the letter. These things, Titus, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
And he says this at the end of Titus 3, verse 15. All who are with me greet you. That's the kind of Timothy says hi thing at the end that Paul always has in his letter. You know, hi from so-and-so. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. And then notice what Paul says as he signs off. Grace be with you all. In that very moment, as Paul closed his letter, he's not just thinking of Titus. He knows this letter is written for the, tit- the, the, the Cretan churches. And so he then addresses all of them in that final statement. Grace be with you all. And that's important. That's part of the common faith that Paul felt even with these Cretans. As we already saw in chapter 1, verse 12, the Cretans had quite the reputation As their own poets would say of them, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And in this, Paul says, we have a common faith. We have a common faith. Finally, we have the messenger's wish. We've seen his identification. We've seen his addressee, the recipient. But we also see the wish. And these are precious words. The end of verse 4 Paul says this to Titus. He says, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace and peace, two great concepts in Paul's writing. If you read the letters of Paul much, you'll quickly come across this word grace. And perhaps if there's one word that would summarize all of Paul's rich theology, it would be the word grace. Grace refers to God's favor shown through Christ Jesus and shown without consideration of merit or condition. It is beautiful and it is boundless. When you read the Apostle Paul in all the places where he mentions grace and describes grace and exposits grace, it's always this idea, God's favor shown through Jesus Christ It is God's favor that is detached from any kind of worthiness. And it is beautiful and it is boundless, limitless. There's also the concept of peace. This too is so important in Paul's writings. He describes the Christian life very simply elsewhere in Romans as peace with God. That's what the Christian life is. That's what salvation is. Peace with God. And what is peace? You could put it this way. Peace is the result of grace's application. When grace has been applied, when grace has been applied, a state of, the pros- a state of prosperity of the soul is then enjoyed. Peace is, is soul prosperity, not material prosperity. You can be poor. You can be destitute. You can live without so much other than just the air you breathe and the water and bread that you eat and and you can still be in a state of prosperity, the most important prosperity, because you've received the grace of God. And that prosperity brings to the soul a, a new life, a new state in which all worry and fear and strife can be mortified, can be cast away, Because you know you stand right with God. His grace has been made abundant to you. And this, of course, 
comes from a singular source in two persons. The language here again emphasizes the indistinguishableness of the origin of the grace and the peace. But Paul mentions two persons. It is from God and Christ Jesus. God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the only source of grace and peace. And this is Paul's wish for Titus and for all who would read this letter. So as we come to our next stage of study, which will begin next week, we must remember these words that Paul has and remember the contents that we are going to study come from a God who does not lie and they are filled with grace and peace. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this this introduction to the letter and we're thankful that you can take something which in so many other ways would be so mundane, the beginning of a letter, and you can move your instrument to write profound truth. Truth that brings us to worship and adoration. To see you as a God who makes promises that will be kept. A God who is not dependent upon time, but is eternal. A God who cannot lie, but every word, every decree, every promise is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. A God who is sovereign in that He doesn't leave it to the forces and powers of His creation, but He Himself works all things to its proper outcome, the one You've decreed. That You are a God who is a Savior. That You delight in pouring mercy upon the unworthy. And You are an impartial God. You are one who bases Your actions not on the worthiness of one over the other, but simply on Your good pleasure and goodness to us. Father, as we begin this study then, we pray that this letter of Titus would would yield to us great truth. Great truth that would impact and transform our lives, that would spur us on beyond what we have already achieved and experienced. Even more than that, we pray that it would result in an increase in the fervor of our adoration for who You are as our great Savior. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.